welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Jake. I am joined today by my friend and colleague, Brant Van Rokel. And our esteemed guest today is Dr. Jonathan Pennington, uh, the author of a number of things. But today we're talking about his new book, Jesus, the Great Philosopher. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. And uh, my dog just barked. And so he might be joining us occasionally too with some answers. So hopefully that's fine. Perfect. 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 Uh, Jonathan, we want to just kind of get right into it because um, as you would find, if you read the book, you really talk about a lot of things uh, from politics to friendship uh, to my little pony um, to a Christian <laughs> conference where a bunch of men take off their shirts, which we want to really zero <laughs> in on. Um, there's a lot to cover here. So if it's okay with you, let's just uh, dive uh, right, right into the, into the conversation. Um, the, the title is provocative, uh, Jesus, the Great Philosopher. Uh, Brand grew up in the church. Uh, I didn't really grow up uh, in the church, uh, but I imagine that most people have never heard Jesus referred to as a philosopher. Uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe just begin by helping us see, I know this is the whole book in some sense, but really quickly, uh, why we should uh, worship Jesus as our personal Lord uh, and philosopher. Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks for taking time to read the book and uh, such a, so great to be with you guys. Yeah, I mean, that's you're getting right at the heart of it. Um, you know, I always like to say Jesus is not uh, Jesus is more than a philosopher, but he's not less than one. And so I, I hope it's obvious to all your hearers that I'm affirming what is definitely true that Jesus is Savior and King and Lord and God incarnate and all those things. But what I'm trying to do in this book is help the church and non-Christians too discover that there's another aspect of Jesus's ministry and life and, and being uh, and role in our lives that can be summed up best with this old word philosopher that throughout most of the church's history, this is the way that they talked about Jesus. And as you may recall from the book, I talk about right from the beginning in sacred art and in uh, people like Justin Martyr and others, they just regularly understand Jesus as a philosopher. It's a basic part of their understanding, but we've lost this. And so that's what I'm trying to do is just kind of rediscover uh, a lost image, a lost aspect of, of the beauty and wonder of who Jesus is. That's really awesome, Dr. Pennington. And uh, as I read the book, I, for one, noticed a lot of similarities with um, much of your teaching, which I very greatly benefited from when I was one of your students. Um, but also in some of your recent other books, uh, your book on the Sermon on the Mount came to mind. And I was wondering, as you um, looked at this book and looked at writing Jesus, a great philosopher, uh, emphasizing that point about how we are trained by him to inhabit the world in ways that accord with God's own nature, his will and his coming kingdom. Um, when you're making that emphasis in this book and in some other books, what is it exactly that you're seeing in the church today that prompts you to write this book? Yeah, that's a great connection. And the way you just described there, it's funny, I hadn't thought of that exactly that way myself, but what you, that's, how I, that's how I define righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel of Matthew is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom, which I think is, you know, I guess I wrote it, so I think it's true, but it, I think is, is clearly uh, what Jesus is teaching, particularly in Matthew's presentation. And yeah, I, I, in the Jesus, the Great Philosopher book, I describe it as a way of seeing and being in the world. But thanks for that insight. That is basically the same thing. That's what I'm, I'm saying. It's a way of seeing and being in the world. So, so why? Why am I talking about that in both those books? Well, um, again, I, I don't think it's because our evangelical church tradition is wrong or bad at all. I, I don't, uh, I certainly don't have any desire to you know, come across as a prophetic judge or something, but just that I want to help us rediscover a, a very beautiful and important part of what it means to be a disciple. And so I guess if I were to push our tradition a little bit, I, I think what maybe I would say is that we do tend to get stuck in our heads. And because our tradition particularly values orthodox doctrine and right teaching, and that's good, and I don't want any less of that, but that emphasis for us has tended to make us only concentrate on that and sometimes lose the, the deeper whole person reality of our affections and our bodies matter to God as well. And that discipleship is so much more than 
agreeing to a set of doctrines or even agreeing to a set of doctrines and, you know, don't not drinking or chewing or running with girls who do, you know, that kind of thing, not just a kind of set of basic morals, but the discipleship means um, seeing Jesus clearly and following him, not only learning his teachings and adopting them, but learning him as a model for how to see and be in the world. And so I just don't think our tradition has always done a great job of that. I don't mean to ever act like, you know, I've got the solution to solve all of our problems far from it. But I do think we've kind of lost some of that kind of discipleship element. And I think partly it's not only we get stuck in our heads. I think it's also that it's what I often call um, creeping uber Lutheranism, which (laughs) is this sort of um, idea that, that virtue and good deeds and good works are somehow suspect or somehow bad or somehow uh, something to be worried about and avoid. I just, I mean, that, that's what I was arguing, especially in the Sermon on the Mount book, is that the Sermon on the Mount presents itself as a, as a model for how to follow Jesus. It's not contra Luther. It's not just showing us how bad we are and making us need imputation. I mean, we need Christ's imputation, but that has nothing to do with the Sermon on the Mount. It is giving us a model for how to be a disciple. So it's kind of a long-winded answer, sorry, but that's what I'm trying to get at. I think we get stuck in our heads, and I think we've also lost a category for the good, as I like to say it. We've lost a category for good and beautiful behavior, good and beautiful ways of being that are fulfilling, and what it means to flourish in Christ's kingdom. I want to just... uh jump on what you just said there. I mean, you talked about, you just said, you know, we get stuck in our head. And I think a lot of people listening right now, they think of philosophy as simply existing in our head as well. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you can help us understand uh, when did things change with philosophy? Again, maybe this is an entirely different book, uh, but when did things change philosophically uh, that we began thinking of philosophy as this sort of uh, disembodied reality? as we were just sort of just thinking these things, it has nothing to do with our you know, day-to-day life, uh, as it were. When did that shift happen historically? Yeah, that's such a, yeah, it's a great question. And and yeah, that's right. I mean, it's kind of ironic. I'm just saying, don't get stuck in your heads that I'm recommending Jesus as a philosopher, right? And, and that's what I tried to uh, talk about early on in the book, as you know, is a, I call it, the chapter is called, I believe, the genius of ancient philosophy. And the point is that, you're exactly right. What we mean by the term philosophy today is very, very different than what it meant in the ancient world. Today, it does mean abstract, esoteric. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just for really smart people who are completely disconnected from reality. And that is the exact opposite of what philosophy was in the ancient world. Philosophy in the ancient world was a mode of discipleship, a way of seeing and being in the world that included heady thoughts, like what's the nature of a horse and and what, how to earth and wind and fire work together to make the cosmos and these kind of great philosophical questions are how do you be happy? Those, those are heady thoughts, but they realized that those were only important so that they, to the effect that they impacted our personal lives, like how we lived with virtue and how we lived in relationships and how we structured society. And so um, when did that happen? Well, it, it's hard to say exactly, but it seems like philosophy was understood in this broader sense of very practical, um, probably, you know, probably varies by place, but probably at least through the medieval period. What's interesting is that the place where it was retained the most in Christianity was in the monasteries. And that's the kind of weird thing we think of that, that the monastic model is actually based directly on the philosophical model of the ancient schools, where you have a, a sage that's in charge and people live together and share life communally and exercise together and do good works together. And so that maintained, I think, all the way through the monastic tradition. But in the broader world, it probably is connected to kind of the rise of the university in the late medieval period. And then especially in the modern period um, with the, the turn in philosophy with Immanuel Kant and others, the move into thinking about uh, philosophy as is primarily epistemological. There's your big word for today, but primarily philosophy is being about how you know, which is really important, 
but it's not the only purpose of, of philosophy. And so, I don't know, I think it probably, it's a pretty modern turn, I guess, is the short answer, which is saying, when we lost that sense of it, but we're a couple hundred years into it, 300 years into it. And so for most of us, philosophy is just completely abstract and meaningless. Um, if you recall from the book, I, I early on quote one of my favorite people, Steve Martin, uh, who is a great comedian and novelist and playwright and film producer and everything else. And, you know, he, he talks about philosophy this way and he kind of reflects how philosophy has really become meaningless. And I think it's primarily a modern phenomenon that that's happened. And that's what I'm trying to help us rediscover that there's an older sense of philosophy that would be really helpful to, to know again. Yeah. You quote Steve Martin uh, saying uh, that it's something you study that screws you up for the rest of your life. So that was a great quote uh, for me. That's one of my favorite lines. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Um, but then you're making a distinction then between an ancient form of philosophy that was focusing on a way of being in this world that led to the good life, to, to flourishing, versus maybe how we think about it today uh, being a way, of, a way of thinking. I find that just really interesting a couple of levels. One, because I, I think I grew up in a tradition, the way that I understood a lot of my faith um, was with this overemphasis maybe on the thinking of my faith, knowing the right answers versus the living and being in this world in a different kind of way. And you mentioned the significance uh, of ancient philosophers and those, those original forms that, you know, the, the mon monasteries maybe came from. Uh, you mentioned Plato's Academy, Aristotle's Lyceum, uh, Epicurus's Garden. And um, I just wanted to just get a, a sharp point on that maybe. And, you know, why were those places so important? Um, and maybe what role do they place on, on imitation? What does the Bible say about that? Yeah, the, the history that's very interesting and and what you see in the church fathers is that they see these connections very easily, like they didn't even have to think about it, that of course that uh, the schools of philosophy in the ancient world were the models for um, early church education as well. And actually there's an in-between step and that is the rabbinic schools. Um, Jewish and rabbinic historians and scholars will tell you uh, that the model for what we think of as the rabbinic schools that you see in the New Testament, Second Temple Judaism in the New Testament, they themselves are based on the Greek philosophical schools, which they were because you already had, you're talking a few hundred years earlier where you had again, a sage, a philosopher, a wise man who not only knew a bunch of stuff, but was a model of virtue themselves, would gather around tied disciples, that was the word they used, disciples or learners who would live with them um, and learn their way of thinking, learn their way of seeing, learn their way of um, metaphysics, what's the nature of reality, learn their way of ethics, what is the good and how to pursue it, learn their way of politics, what are relationships in society like. And they live together because learning occurs in community and learning occurs not only with the brain being with transferring information, but through models of um, people that are exemplars or models that inspire you to live differently. Um, and, you know, we could, we could go on and talk about how this shift in philosophy is actually accompanied with a shift in education where today education overall becomes transfer of data from one person to another. Like when you think about what a teacher is, I, I've often done this with students in various lecture situations. I say, you know, what makes a good teacher I think most, most of us would define teaching as, again, the transfer of content from one brain to another brain, right? And, and the idea that, that the person's own character and virtue and model outside of the classroom was just as important as their ability to communicate data, that seems so foreign to us, right? But that in the ancient world, the reason why it was important that they live together is because someone's cognitive teaching, their brain stuff is only as valid and as valuable as their moral life. Mm -hmm. And so living together is absolutely crucial. And so you can see the rabbis build schools like this. And then lo and behold, what does Jesus do? Uh, he turns out to be a peripatetic philosopher like others where they walked around. And when you know Aristotle and others do that, they would walk around and just kind of talk and say, look at that and look at this and, and think about this. Well, once you sort of realize that was going on in the ancient world, and then you read the Gospels, you're like, of course, that's what the Gospels are trying to show. The Jesus is the ultimate peripatetic uh, philosopher. He's traveling around, gathering disciples, teaching them, 
and being a model himself of, of godliness and virtue and humility. I love that uh, talking about community. So Dr. Parrington, you serve in a teaching capacity, but you also serve in a pastoral capacity as well. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how you've implemented some of those things you're saying uh, in your own ministry uh, to people as you walk them and start, and start to teach them. Like, how have you lived that out in your, in your own pastoring? Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I preach a lot at my church and, um, but I also am in I'm, my technical title now is the spiritual formation pastor. So I'm involved in discipleship training program that we're just getting together. And also I run the men's ministry and I'll, I guess I can just speak to the men's ministry. One of the most important things I do or the, the motto of our men's ministry is connect men with God, connect men with each other. And I always emphasize that both of those aspects are essential. And so, you know, I teach Bible studies. I coordinate some other men that teach Bible studies. Um, and then I also have like golf outings, <laughs> which I particularly enjoy, and other uh, men's connection nights and things like that. So in other words, in my mind, just using the one small example of men's ministry, I see as equally important that I'm building relationships with men and getting coffee with them and talking with them about their marriages, talking with them about their parenting, just creating a safe space for men. I just, this happened just last week again, where I just create a safe space for men to be honest about their emotions and be honest about their marriages and be honest with in a kind of judgment free zone in the sense of like, I'm a safe container and you can be real and authentic with me and I'm here to support you. And so that, I do that and I teach Bible studies, right? And both of those things together, I think, are the way I try to um, emphasize that both of those aspects together are what ministry is. Um, it's not just the cognitive teaching, but it's the the teaching in the midst of relationship. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Did I get it, what you're asking? Or, okay. okay. And I think it's especially relevant right now, given the season we're in, like the church globally with covid uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure what lockdown looks like uh, in Kentucky, uh, but lockdown here in Vancouver is, you know, no one, no one ever is, is, is what it feels like. And so there's a real isolating sense that many people in our church, I, I know, are experiencing in this season, uh, which makes what you're saying kind of all the more in one way is like encouraging, but in other ways saddening because there is that sort of imitative thing that we're wanting to do in the season that we're just we don't know how. Uh, because it's just so difficult to physically be together. And, and even being on a Zoom call like we are right now uh, it is limited. Um, you know, you can't see my slumped shoulders or, or, or whatever the, the, the case may be. And so I think this is something that's really relevant, relevant to us as a church in this season. We're trying to work through as best we can, I guess, like everybody else. Um, related yeah. to that question, uh, you have a whole section in the book on emotions. Um, and I loved, loved, loved that chapter. I think it's, I think it's maybe a couple of chapters, uh, but I loved those chapters. I would highly commend uh, the book um, for all of it, but especially for those chapters. In my experience, and again, this is not authoritative, but in my experience, um, in the church, we see two things. Uh, like suppress emotions, they're bad. They can't be trusted. You know, like uh, you get the, the passage, you know, your, your heart is, you know, wicked above all else. Don't trust your heart right? Your emotions. On the other hand, we have people who, who live and die by their emotions, uh, where, you know, doing tremendous one day and terrible the next, and, and they're just leaning in hard to those emotions. I'm wondering how uh, understanding Jesus as our philosopher, how that helps us uh, in the emotive component of our life, mm -hmm. of our being. Yeah, good. Well, thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed those chapters. They were probably for me, the most significant as well, um, just to research and, and think more and kind of force myself to articulate what I think about it. And, and so for the listeners who I hope will pick up the book and read it themselves and, and, you know, there are lots of other places I've done teaching just on emotions at my church and village in Denton, Texas, and a bunch of other places I've done teachings that people can find at jonathanpennington.com. If you go, there's a bunch of videos and stuff if they want sort of more oral version of that. But the basic idea is that the reason this is connected in, to a book on Jesus' philosopher is because 
what emotions are and what role they play in our lives was one of the main topics of ancient philosophy, which again is so shocking because you think philosophy, oh, abstract, esoteric, you know, irrelevant. No, they recognize that emotions were a huge part of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to flourish and thrive as a human, the philosophers all knew you had to have a really thoughtful analysis of what emotions are and how to, as I describe it, educate them. So those two chapters together are called educating emotions. So what I do is I trace through the different philosophical views in the ancient world and then kind of trace through how they end up basically still being the same kind of options in a more modern neurological world um, where you have people that in the broader world would say that emotions are just chemicals and you just need to control them um, and they're kind of bad in that sense. And there's something kind of an annoyance that, you know, make you do dumb things. So you need to control them. Um, and on the other hand, you know, a view that emotions are, uh, you know, the essence of who we are and are, you know, to not be controlled at all or something. And I think, and then, so what I do is I, as I do in all those chapters, I turn to the Bible and say, okay, well, if the Bible is from God and is the greatest philosophy of the world, that's very thoughtful and very relevant. What does the Bible have to say about emotions? And there's more that I could do. And some people have already suggested that maybe I take those two chapters and write a whole book on those. And maybe I will, because I I think there's more that could be said. And I leaned on a lot of other great books on emotions. If you kind of follow the end notes on there, there's some other good ones you can read by Christians on emotions. But when you turn to the Bible, what I suggest is that the Bible is very um, positive on emotions in the sense that it's what it, emotions are part of what it means to be human and mm-hmm. that Jesus for sure has emotions. And then God is depicted as having emotions. And there's, you know, theological debate about to what degree that is, those are anthropomorphisms. That is just things that we're projecting on God. But I, I argue that, that that's not a sufficient explanation that God himself does have emotions, meaning, and especially the ones we care the most about, like love, <laughs> that that's not just a cognitive idea. I love you, you know, in a kind of duty way or something, but so that, that God has made us as emotional beings and emotions are a good thing. Um, and that we're commanded to have a lot of emotions. And in fact, the greatest commandment involves wholehearted affection of emotions completely. And so Um, the point is that to be human is to have emotions and to, um, also recognize that we're commanded and invited to learn to manage our emotions in wise and good ways. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I call it educating emotions that we embrace what it means to be an emotional person. That's part of what it means to be human. And then we also, um, recognize that we need to over time educate and shape our emotions in certain ways through certain habits so that we might flourish. That's so great. Um, I, uh, back to this idea of, of the wholeness and there's just a significant piece you pick up there. You kind of play off of uh, some earlier philosophy talking about Immanuel Kant and the way that um, uh, Kant may be responsible for the way that we don't think about virtue today or ethics today um, as having to necessitate the heart. And it, it seems like you're really pushing against that in this really wonderful and beautiful way showing us that God desires whole people, not just, not just virtuous living that's like, hey, I did the right things in my life or I thought the right things in my life, but actually that I love and I desire the right things in life as well. And uh, I don't know if you want to uh, flesh that out a little, a little bit more, maybe about the, the way that ethics and emotion go together, like the, the virtuous person and emotion uh, right emotions connect? Yeah, I talked about that a little bit in those in one of those chapters or a couple of those chapters as well. And there's so much more to be said on that. And uh, I, you know, I'm not a professional philosopher and I'm certainly not a Kant expert. So I don't, you know, maybe the, the Emmanuel Kant scholars would not, would want to push back. And I'm sure there's probably more nuance to it than what I've said, but it, it does seem that he represents a, turn or a move in ethics that divorces it from the person and makes it about the principle mm-hmm. speaking general terms again i'm sure there's more nuance somewhere in there but but that's very different than i think both ancient views of ethics and biblical views of ethics that include emotions as part of what it means to be ethical and the you know 
if your listeners want to go deep in this, the best person for sure is the absolutely brilliant force of nature philosopher, Martha Nussbaum, who teaches at the University of Chicago, Therapy of Desire and some other books of hers where she shows that emotions or affections are central to what it means to be an ethical person, you know? And so, I mean, there's a lot of scholarship behind this. I would just say from a biblical perspective, just think of, again, the first and second greatest commandment, mm -hmm. um, love, which you might say, well, love is more than emotion. It's a verb. Okay, fine. <laughs> but if just try to be in a relationship with someone where that's your only view of love, <laughs> you know, say, Hey, I, I don't, I don't really like you and don't feel any affection for you, but I love you. Is that a sufficient? No, of course not. And that that's not good for any relationship and for our relationship toward God or God's toward us or us towards each other. So the, so the basic idea is that, yeah, ethics seems like it's completely divorced from emotions, but if you start thinking about it biblically, it is connected. Another simple example on the negative side is that um, remorse, feeling bad, is actually really an essential part of repentance. Yeah, I don't mean I don't mean in a sense that we need to wallow in self pity, but repentance, as Paul himself defines it, includes a godly sorrow. Yeah. Notice that I could I probably could have done more on the book with that than I did in the book, but that, that there's a, there's an affective element to remorse and repentance that if that's absent, mm -hmm. then it's not truly repentance. And so you just start thinking about, okay, well, so then we really can't separate ethics from emotions in a deep sense and that our emotions need to be educated in certain ways that are appropriate that accord with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. I think I can even uh, add to that. I mean, I know in our current literature, like self-help literature, the idea of shame is altogether mm. as negative, right? Shame is always a bad thing. And yet you'll have um, psychologists, um, a neurologist who would talk about something called healthy shame. If there should be a sense that this is not how we act in this community. And if it isn't there, uh, then no change will actually happen. I think that's one of the ways I think scripture helps educate our emotions, particularly as it uh, refers to that especially i'm just thinking about uh when you consider we're talking the bible you know a god who has created this world and created us and there is a right way of being in this world that does accord with the flourishing life then you start to get into things like the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh you know, that there is there are appropriate ways that we are now by the spirit to put off an old way of living and have the appropriate emotions to put off that old way of living and then to also embody by the holy spirit but the spirit of jesus by the way within us, uh, who produces the right sort of emotions and right sort of feelings within us. Um, like what, how do I solve the problem of, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, Dr. Pennington, but I don't have those emotions and I want to walk by the spirit. And you mentioned the place of practice, uh, you know, as a formative tool for virtue and for even the right emotions. I, I wonder if you could comment on that a little bit. Uh, as we want to become imitators of Jesus, how can we actually grow uh, in having the right sort of emotions as we walk by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Well, I guess I'd say, first of all, to remember that God's not anxious about you, that he is not worried about you, mm -hmm. and that he is doing his good work in you um, according to his timing. So we don't need to show up in our relationship with God worried I think in that sense, I mean, that's not a relationship of love. That's a relationship of fear. So that's the first thing I'd say, but then related to that, I'd say that again, I think in our tradition, we have an overly static view of humanity, which comes from our tradition's emphasis on that. You're either born again, or you're not, you're either justified or you're not, you're either saved or you're not, which are absolutely true categories. Right. But, most of the Bible, although the Bible does talk in those categories, most of the Bible and most of human experience is more developmental, not static. So we need categories more than just this versus that, or this state versus that state, as true as that is. We need a, a deep, profound conceptualization of us developing, being on a pilgrimage, being on a journey from one image of glory to another, from one state in process to another. And so I, I bring that up to say 
that when you think, when you look at your life and say, oh, gosh, I, I want to walk by the spirit, but I don't see X, Y, Z. I'd say, of course, because <laughs> this is a journey. This is not just like, oh, you you know, turn a knob or flip a switch and everything's perfect. We are embodied humans with histories and problems and sanctification is a process. It is becoming into the image of Christ through a pilgrimage of following. And we just don't have a lot of category for that. Like we just have lost that. We primarily think in static terms, good guys, bad guys, justified, unjustified, saved, unsaved. But the primary categories are developmental, I think. And that's our, that's our experience works. Does that answer your question or yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, it does. I think that um, I, I was thinking about that. I was thinking also the way that you talked about training your emotions. There's like a, mm. you, you and I wondered if you'd comment as well, maybe on the, you know, you got cognitive behavioral therapy where you're educating your emotions. Um, but then also the role that, especially the Stoics talked about uh, doing sort of certain things. Like uh, you lead with action sometimes in obedience, thinking of this, this right. obedient. And sometimes it's the fact that we choose to obey in faith and that God somehow uses that to, to, you know, to work on our emotions and to develop the right character. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really good. Yes, I don't know if I said this in the book or not, but it certainly is hinted at and also in the Sermon on the Mount book. And one of the ways I sum it up is that there is a place for duty on the way to virtue. Um, so if virtue is defined as whole personness, where your reasoning, your affections, and your actions are in harmony with each other, that's virtue. And that's what it means to be fully human. The word virtue comes from virtus, meaning man or human. So the idea of being virtuous is that you're fully human. You're fully thriving in that sense. So virtuousness um, entails the wholeness of who we are affectionately, cognitively, affectionately, behaviorally. How you get there, which is never complete, but how you get there is like through, there's like three doors. You, you get there through thinking differently. You get there through having emotional experiences where you take your shirt off in a group of men or whatever, and you, and you get there through doing and, and that we can't, we don't need a simple, we shouldn't have a simplistic anthropology. And again, our, if I might just speak of our tradition, our tradition tends to have a very simplistic anthropology or nature of humanity, understanding that everything goes head, heart, body. Right. But while some things do, I would suggest, and this is where Jamie Smith's super helpful and, and others, um, Drew Johnson, my good friend, is very good on this kind of stuff too, that we're lovers before we're knowers and that a lot of what we think and do is actually a function of our affections even before our thoughts at a kind of a subconscious level. So, so we, the point is all three of those aspects of the complex and beautiful thing that a human is are all kind of in a chicken and egg relationship. Like you can't just say one inspires the other. The reality is they're all kind of feeding each other. And so often we do things with our bodies and that shapes our thinking and shapes our emotions. It's not just the other way around. Yeah. So um, yeah, so I think that's what it answers that you have to have a fuller view of, of uh, the, what the human is and let all three of those be entry points into development and to virtue. I, I do want to get to uh, the Christian conference where men are taking their shirt off. Um, that's sort of what I'm <laughs> interview to that point, if, if you're wondering. Uh, but I want to circle back, if we can, to Kant for a second, because you write in your book, uh, Kant's idea of a good action is called altruism. Uh, and in Vancouver, we have this big prominent park called Stanley Park. Uh, it's right on the water. It's beautiful. Probably the most beautiful park in the world, if I can just say that uh, now. But the park is dedicated to altruism. It's dedicated to altruism. Um, and then you write, uh, altruism is thoroughly unbiblical. <laughs> and, and I love that because, well, first, I want to ask, what is altruism? Uh, and why is it thoroughly unbiblical? How is a park dedicated to altruism? What does that even mean? <laughs> well, what what do they mean by Vancouver. that? Welcome to Vancouver. Yeah. But I mean, seriously, what do what is the conceptualization of that? Like, how is that presented or how is it marked or signed with something or... Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't give you the exact details of that. It's on sort of these different plaques throughout the park, um, these, these different sort of stations, uh, as it were. Uh, but if you dig into the history, um, Brett Landry, our, our, our senior pastor, was talking to us about this uh, before this podcast. 
And, and so um, I'll, I'll get him to contact you about the sort of how that works in terms of dedicating a park to a philosophical ideal. It's very interesting. Yeah, I'd be curious to know what is meant by that. Um, yeah, so what is altruism? Altruism is usually defined as maybe the park department defined it differently, but uh, altruism is usually defined as that um, something you do for which you receive no benefit. And the kind of the weaponized version of that in Kant, if I understand him correctly, and others, at least in how it functions for most people, is that something is not virtuous if you get benefit from it. Mm -hmm. That's where it kind of comes down to it. So, and the thing is, that sounds really noble. Like, oh yeah, like when you say that, yeah, of course, right, right. But, but the reality is you have to stop and think, is that ever the case? And is that even a good idea? Mm -hmm. And it's certainly most importantly for us, we'd ask, is that biblical? And I think the answer to all three of those questions would be no. There is no way for anything to be done without some self-interest, but that doesn't make it bad. I mean, self-interest is not all bad. It can be bad, of course. Thing, every All goods can be perverted, but we are embodied actors or agents that um, always have self-interest as part of our as part of our reality and that you can't just define that as negative from the beginning you'd have to sort of unpack why that would be good or bad and when you turn to the bible i mean other people can believe that they want but when you turn to the bible you see that the bible is constantly appealing to us based on self-interest right i mean there there is the the whole invitation to flee from the wrath to come you, you know no if a prophet says that and then the people flee to him and say but okay but i mean you can't personally get spared from the wrath i mean i mean are you coming because you want to get spared from the wrath so that's not good right i mean what what's the point of any invitation to goodness if it's not self-interest of course there is right and then the ultimate example is why did jesus be willing to endure the cross it says it tells us explicitly for the joy set before him. You can't say, well, come on, Jesus, that's a little self-centered, isn't it? Right? You need to go to Vancouver and go to the park and you'll see that <laughs> go, go about these things. But the point is there, there's no way to be free from self-interest. Yes, it can be perverted, but there's no inherent virtue in freedom from self-interest. That is an entirely modern idea or mostly modern idea. That's not something the ancient philosophers ever said that I'm aware of or that the Bible teaches as well, that it's okay. Of course, you should, you should be pursuing your, your own flourishing as well as others. And the reality is that you will never really flourish unless you're also helping others flourish. I mean, that's the reality of community, but that doesn't mean it's wrong to pursue your own good. That's the basis of most of our ethical um, motivations, I'd suggest to you. I think about, we were teaching through the Sermon on the Mount um, last year, um, and we'll get to the part about rewards. And the yeah, rewards is very uncomfortable in our tradition. Uh, we don't know what to do with the reward language. So hold on a second. Like, wh like, why should I get something out of this? Isn't this just for the for the duty of doing it? Uh, and, and so we don't know how to actually read a lot of the Bible if we go through it with an altruistic uh, a viewpoint. So I think that's been really helpful. Uh, that's where it first came home to me. It was in studying the sermon for a decade or so, and it was Matthew six. So I'm like, he's very clear on rewards like the the point of 6 1 to 21 in the sermon on the mount in matthew as you know i'm sure is not that whoa 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 don't be looking out for reward it's, it's actually don't get a reward that doesn't last get the best reward right and so it's a very different kind of appeal than than altruism offers although i've never been to vancouver so <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to willing to throw all that away if the park no, is really beautiful you're you're right i, I do want us to turn out and consider friendship and I've been, I've been hyping up this story about uh, guys with their shirts off at a conference. So can you tell us that story? Because I know people are listening right now just only want to hear that story. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, it's actually, there's a, there's a men's ministry and there's a women's corresponding one that's separate that uh, I've been very involved in for many years that is just absolutely wonderful. And part of... Uh, it's a weekend intensive is what you go through this journey. It's very journey sort of centered. I don't mean the 1980s rock band, although <laughs> that can be part of it too, um, but don't stop believing. But it's it's very much helping men and in their own weekends, women get real with their emotions and pay attention to what's going on in their lives and their story and, and to find Jesus at the cross in the midst of that. And so, you know, without 
sharing too much. One of the things that happens on these intensive weekends, which I've been to 10 or 12 times now, um, is, and kind of help coordinate them is that there's just a, an awareness of our bodies and that, um, it's nothing weird or <laughs> anything about it. Um, well, it does feel a little awkward and that's kind of the point. And that's the illustration I use in the book is that, um, we have, um, something's gotten really messed up in relationships between men, men and other men that if you're in any kind of scenario where even you take your shirts off very quickly, there ends up being jokes about homosexuality. And, and I, and I get this idea with this observation from Wes Hill and his excellent book, spiritual friendship, which I'd recommend to you if you haven't read where he points out that there's this sort of Freudian sexification that has really messed up male and male friendships and female and female friendships, maybe more on the men's side, I think probably, um, but especially male inner male friendships have really gotten messed up in the modern world because everything has become so sexualized mm -hmm. and it really has hurt one of the most important things that a human needs to thrive. And that is same sex friendships mm -hmm. that, and this is what I say in our men's ministry as well, men need men and women need women. Mm -hmm. And, and part of it is that um, we've all, it's corresponded with this romantic sort of notion in the 19th century and beyond that the most important relationship in your life is a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's just historically, that's not really something you can find most people thinking. In fact, as, as, and I know that's very sac, you know, sacrilegious to say, because I'm not denigrating the value of marriage biblically or culturally, but the marriage relationship is one kind of relationship, but it's not, it's certainly not the only kind of relationship we need to thrive. And I think the jury's out on whether it's even the best kind of relationship to really thrive as a human. And I know there's my, there's my uh, spicy hot take yeah. uh, for the day, but, but I think men need men and women need women. And, and one of the ways I've said it in other public places is that um, I think the quality of one's marriage is directly proportional to the quality of one's same gender friendships. Um, I, I think that's, in fact, I've never said it quite that way. That was a great way to say it. I'll, I'll say it. That's now, you heard it here first. That's, a, that's a, uh, I've never said it quite that way, but that's what I think. I think marriages are often healthy or not. One measure of that is, is how good of friendships both partners of that marriage have with people of the same gender, because you, you, we just need a different kind of relationship that's not sexualized. Yeah, because actually sexualization adds an element to relationships that is great for what it is, but it's not the essence of friendship. Mm -hmm. And so this is getting back to the men with their shirts off again, that we need to be able to be with men in a way that itself doesn't even get sexualized, that it's just OK to be with men. And you think about in the history of the world, I mentioned this, you know, warriors, um, and various people throughout the world today that, that men are together with other men in a way that's not weird. Yeah. Right. And because we're more centered in who we are as men and we're more centered in who we are in our bodies mm -hmm. and everything doesn't have to get sexualized. And so that was the point of that whole story. One so thing, questions you want to follow up on that? Or I said, uh, I mean, this, this chapter, you know, you guys, the emotional chapter was very, uh, the emotion chapter is very it's my chapter was was Jake's chapter. Sure. I, I loved it as well, but I was, I'm just so moved by thinking about friendship right now for a couple of reasons. One is I think um, we often talk about Vancouver being a lonely city, but I don't know that Vancouver is that unique compared to a lot of modern metropolises, you know, it's busy and people are more and more siloed in their lives and you add COVID into the whole mix. And one thing we've been doing um, part of our vision for who Christ city church is in our neighborhood churches that we are, um, our planting is that we are uh, a very neighborhood oriented uh, uh, community. And so we've been calling people to, you know, come and live here, come and live in, in proximity with one another. But as I'm reflecting on your book, as I'm reflecting on the Bible and this premise that's placed on uh, a community of persons which are in friendship together, I'm realizing how much the call must be even more than that. It's a call to become friends with one another. Uh, in this in this deep and beautiful way, and you said something really wonderful uh, to that end. Um, I don't know if I have the quote here right exactly. Um, 
oh man, I don't worry, I misplaced it, I think. But you talked about um, to adopt the Christian philosophies to become a group of true friends. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. It's like this idea that, you know, mm-hmm. this, this ethos and how we're imitating Jesus and becoming virtuous people, we can't do that alone. And marriage itself actually won't last, Jesus says. Uh, but this community of the church does continue and does uh, move forward. Um, so I would, I would love, I don't know, like what, if so, just some thoughts, like what happened to friendship in this society, Dr. Panetta is a huge, it's a huge mm. question, but I'm, I'm, as I'm reflecting on this, I'm, I'm moved by it. Like I'm, it's brought me to tears thinking about, like, I don't value friends in the way that the Bible values friendship. I don't value relationships mm. that way. I don't value the, them the way that even maybe had they been valued in history. Like what happened? Um, you know, what's going on here? Yeah, that's, that's great. Thanks. I, I, I feel like that portion of the book I care a lot about too, and maybe needed a little bit more development. In fact, though, I feel like the emotions chapters were um, really, I feel like I kind of got to the bottom of it for the most part. There's more that could be said. The friendship relationship slash politics chapters, I felt like I didn't, I mean, I feel like I provided something, but I, I feel like there's still something more to say there, uh, even a lot more to say. And so I'm, I'm glad you benefited from them. I'm very interested in that issue myself, too. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, th- th- again, the ancient philosophers saw this. And that's why that's where I came up with it, that they talked about that friendship was absolutely essential to thriving. Um, and that uh, I and I quote Wes Hill quoting somebody else in the in that chapter too that that they talked about friendship. One of Aristotle's famous phrases is another self. Yeah. That what you find in a friend is a, someone else by whom you can understand yourself and find, and not be alone in the world. And, and so they talked a lot about friendship. They talked about different kinds of friendships. They talked about how central friendship is the flourishing. So I thought a lot about this stuff. And then when you look at the Bible, it's amazing, especially in the gospels and maybe especially in the gospel of John, where he calls he at the, at the, in the upper room discourse on the night in which he was betrayed, he turns them and calls them friends. Right. And this is just, so that means so much more to them than it would mean to us. Cause we just think a friend, like, I don't know, somebody I knew in grade school or something, but friend means another self, someone that your soul resonates with someone that is your other half even see that. And, and here's the interesting thing is that all that language that we now use at weddings in romantic settings, like my other half and my, the one whom my soul loves all that, all of that language was actually applied to friendships in the ancient world. Right. Because same gender friendships, not because everything was erotic, but because there was a recognition that there's a kind of a purity of kind of relationship that's free from sexuality that enables a kind of depth of interconnection. It's, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive for us now. And so so what's happened? Well, I would say it's the same two, same two things I've mentioned kind of a, a romanticization that happened that emphasized that romantic love is the truest kind of relationship. And then also an eroticism that occurred, especially in the late 19th and into the 20th centuries that really messed up our sense of the value of having same gender relationships that are not sexual. So I think those two, that kind of combination of uh, overdone romanticism and overdone eroticism has made it, uh, has really hurt one of the most important things we can ever have, which is friendship. Yeah, I mean, even as you guys were talking, I'm thinking about all the war movies I love to watch. And so mm-hmm. like, like Band of Brothers. Totally. Uh, I think of The Outpost, which is a new one, which is uh, not very appropriate. So this is not an official Christ City recommendation. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're in these hellish, little hellish situations. And yet there's something enviable, if I can say that like that, frankly, about like what they're experiencing as a group of brothers who care for one another in like a deeply sacrificial uh, way where I watch them like oh man like like I want that like I don't want that but I also very much want that and that helps give uh, some words and some language uh, to maybe um, yeah some of what I'm experiencing and the thing is I, yeah. I 
think about that. I also think of C.S. Lewis's quote, which you may have heard, I'm sure you're familiar with, from volume two of his collected letters. And he writes, friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me, it is the chief happiness of life. If I had to give a piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I should say, sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friends. Wow, I did not have that quote. I <laughs> wish I would have. That would be great. So second edition, send me that. Seriously, that's yeah, wonderful. I, I love it. You. And I, I, I love it. I love this picture. You're, you're talking both ancient philosophy, but I think also deeply scriptural. And even, you know, in many ways, the Bible uniquely equips us for having these sorts of friendships. Because that one fear that I have reading this sort of a chapter is, well, it sounds almost wildly idealistic. Like what kind of romantic world do you live in, Dr. Pennington, where, uh, you know, we can have these kind of relationships with one another. And um, you spoke to this to some degree, and I'd love to hear your answer. Like, like, what is it about Jesus following him as the great philosopher that equips us and allows us to have these real relationships? Hmm. Yeah, I, no one's ever asked that question. That's really good. Um, I mean, I, I guess first I'd just say personally, I... I do have some wonderful friends and I am so thankful and have for a long time. Uh, I mean, in different seasons, you know, and, and friends do come and go and that's okay. You know I mean? There are different seasons and you're a different person at different times and new friends come up. And, and I, I always think of what Seneca said about this. I can't remember if I quote this in the book, but you know, once you, you know, keep an eye on someone, but once you decide that they're your friend, you're all in That's with good. them. That's right. Good. And so I think in part, part how I'd answer how following Jesus relates to this is that I think, um, yeah, it's a great, that's really a great question. I should do more on this, but I think it frees you to be real. That's the first thing I'd say, because if you're a Christian, you are accepted in the beloved. Yeah. And so you are free to show up without masks with other people mm -hmm. and that Jesus teaches us to be real and to be broken. Mm -hmm. um, so that's about ourselves. So we, so, because you only have a depth of relationship to degree of which you actually show up with who you really are, right. To whatever degree you're keeping walls built. Well, that's the, that's the quality of your, of your relationships. And if you, if you have a lot of walls between yourself, your true self and others, then that's the quality of relationship you have. You'll have a kind of a paper wall kind of version of relationship. So I think being a Christian and growing and following Christ frees you to be truly who you are, to be, to enter into the fullness of your particular human identity, because you're not con condemned and you have no reason to fear. Um, and I think uh, that's kind of the inward focus and the outward focus is it really teaches us to be people with forgiveness towards others and, and grace towards others. And so I think it's both the, the being real yourself, you bring showing up with your authentic self and then being gracious and forgiving towards others when they wrong you and disappoint you. That combination is the beautiful recipe for having real friendships. Isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? Uh, you, um, that's a language you use actually at one point talking about bel canto uh oh yeah that's right beautiful the, singing yeah singing that's right of, of these reconciled restored relationships that can only happen uh through the forgiveness we, we receive from jesus being extended to one another and jesus says in such a radical way even loving your enemies of course in the sermon as uh, the sermon on the mount yeah i love that well that, that really touches me just talking about it and thinking about it more i mean and, and thinking about just some wonderful men who have been and are friends of mm. mine that I just love to be myself with and, and to extend kindness toward them. It's so beautiful. I just, I don't know that there's anything more rich and beautiful than that. Is there? I'm very thankful. I grew up going to an, an all boys camp uh, for 13 summers. Uh, and so what you're talking about is something that I can deeply uh, appreciate. I also imagine there are people listening right now who are hearing all this beautiful things that we were saying and wondering, I want that. Like, how do I get in on that? Like, like, how do I start that? If there was a piece of advice you'd give for somebody to start down the road of true friendship, um, doesn't have to be profound or, or, or mind blowing, but how would you instruct someone in your church, Jonathan? Mm. Yeah, that's, that's another really good question. 
Uh, my wife always reminds me to, to be careful when I talk because my life seems to go well. <laughs> and she, I mean, she, I mean, she, and I don't know, you know, I can't figure it out either. Like she always reminds me helpfully to just don't, don't assume that everybody's life experience is my life experience. Right. So that's a good reminder of that. Um, yeah. So I, with that qualification that I can only speak from my own experience, not from somebody else's, I would say make the, the little choices to step towards authenticity and vulnerability. And remember that vulnerability begets vulnerability mm-hmm. so that when you are honest, that that actually cre- and creates a safe space for other people to be honest. And then you, you've moved a little bit closer. You, you both take the same, so if we imagine we each have 30 walls of, of sort of self-protection of our true, 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 deepest self that nobody ever really sees. Let's all say we start with 30 walls between us and someone else. By being vulnerable, you can maybe knock down one or two of those walls and then create a safe space for somebody else to be real without giving them advice, without judging them, without condemning them, without feeling like you need to instruct them. That's what it means to create a safe container that you don't have to instruct people when they share their brokenness. You don't have to tell them how to fix it. You don't try to fix it. You just sit with them in that, you know, show up and shut up as, as, as we say, when people are suffering. And so I'd say make small steps toward being vulnerable and authentic with other people and then let other people be themselves. So this is kind of the same two things of what I was saying about how Christianity enables us to be good friends. So you'll be vulnerable to some people and some will have no space for that and just reject it. And that's okay. Right. But you'll be vulnerable to some people and they'll, maybe they'll open up a little bit and then, and then maybe they'll go a few walls down and then that's as far as they go. That's okay. You know I mean? You don't, the key is to show up with an open hand where you want to have a relationship, but you also aren't demanding of others to, to reciprocate. And that's hard to do. That's, I know that's really hard to do, but, you know, take small steps towards what you want take steps towards who you want to be, and then let other people be themselves. And I, my experience has been that when I do that over time, that it does foster real and good and beautiful relationships. Hmm much of what we've been talking about so far, there's a lot of deeply personal aspects of it, um, obviously. And it feels maybe in that sense, it could be, you know, individual centric for, for how are we developing as human beings. But um, you talk about, and you, you see this really great quote, you say, uh, so say societal change that comes through relationships is unstoppable. Where you talk about the way that, you know, this, these relationships really become something that then forms a fabric, not just of our own flourishing as individuals, but our, our flourishing as a community. And you have a section on politics. I'm wondering if you'd um, comment a little bit on um, uh, on the, the, the structure of, of relationships kind of flowing outward and creating a healthy society. Mm-hmm. That is for sure the least baked part of the book, <laughs> for sure. I mean, I mean by that, that I just feel very sophomoric. That is wise, a wise fool, you know, a sophomoron. I feel very sophomoric about that aspect of Christianity. I just feel like I've just begun to scratch the surface of my own understanding. Um, But my point I'm trying to argue there is along with the ancient philosophers is that really the relation, the structures of society are just a macro version of friendship at its core. And so that's a very important concept to think about friendship and, and then marriage being part of it as well. So that all the, the relation, all the, sorry, all the structures we build in society should have at their essence, the same idea of inner organic inner relationship between people, that that's what they are. We're not just building institutions. We're not just building policies. We're just trying to do macro level relationships and that, again, there's a million more things that can be said and how that works out or doesn't. But that's the kind of basic idea is that you, that I think is what the ancient philosophers are saying is that everything that we do needs to start with, with honest, loving relationships and then build up from there. Again, I, on completely honest with you, I just still feel so 
um, just feel like I have so much more I need to understand and think through what that looks like uh, in in kind of public theology or or political uh, ramifications. So sorry, that'll be for another another podcast. Jonathan, we want to be mindful of the time. We really appreciate uh, you taking uh, this moment to be with us uh, to talk uh, Jesus, uh, the great philosopher. Uh, for those listening, that's on sale now. Uh, Dr. Bangton is also the author of the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. And so if you recognize his name, Christ City, it's probably because we've quoted him to you uh, numerous <laughs> times uh, in that series. Uh, and so I would highly commend both of those books. Again, Jesus, the great philosopher, and the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. Those have been, I know, deeply impactful in our own thinking and highly beneficial to us as a church. And so thank you for making the time, Dr. Pennington. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. That, I feel very honored and loved. And uh, uh, I don't just say this to all the girls. I This has really been one of my favorite interviews. This has been so fun. So thank you so much for having me on. And blessings to you. I hope I can come visit you guys up there sometime. That would be wonderful. We would love to have you. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver. You can find us online at herebedragonspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dragon Podcast.